0: Ready, Dave
1: Hey, every funny it's <laughs> Jordan oh you got me and Dave, and we are don't let's start a podcast about they might be giants. This is a show all about.
2: It sure is, Jordan. Back to you.
1: This is a show all about They Might Be Giants and the fans who love them, the fans being us. And the fans go wild. That's right. Girls Gone Wild and Boys. Uh, (laughs) We should have named our show Boys Gone Wild for They Might Be Giants. Anyway. Makes sense. Let's not dilly these dallies any further. This is a very, very exciting episode. This has been in the can, as they say, for a while. The can is a euphemism for many different things. And uh, <laughs> this is an interview with Kurt Hoffman. Dave, why don't you tell me who Kurt Hoffman is? Kurt Hoffman is
2: a horn player. Hot
1: quiz, hot shot. Right? <laughs> that's right <laughs> there you go did you not pick up anything from our five-hour conversation <laughs> with kurt hoffman
2: kurt hoffman played horns with they might be giants that's right he toured with they might be giants he, he was tore- in the ordinaires
1: yes. opening for they might be giants yes, in the yes. 80s
2: <laughs> he has a Keep going. <laughs> history with the johns
1: a history yes sorted no a wonderful history I'll elaborate on what Dave said. He toured with them on the Apollo 18 tour and kind of the early parts of the John Henry era. He plays on a ton of their recordings. He arranged the strings for SEXXY and he plays on lots of songs and and he has a lot of stories about They Might Be Giants and also about his his other bands and and, and musical projects, which we get into.
2: He plays a lot of things and he does a lot of stuff. (laughs) He does a lot
1: of stuff. He's, he's uh, He's a pure artist, I'd say. I'd say
2: he's an artiste.
1: Yes, that's right. Little preview of stuff we talk about. We talk about the infamous stage collapse show. Uh, That was one of my favorite uh, topics. We talk about some unheard uh, scoring work that he's done with They Might Be Giants. We talk about meeting They Might Be Giants, which is always always fun to hear. If you are going to enjoy this episode, which I hope you will, (laughs) if. You can support the show if you if you like it at anchor.fm slash don't let start. There's a little support button there, and that helps us keep the podcast chugging keep the along. Good times rolling. Like the old freight train that it is. And uh, you can also email us. Did you like this episode? You don't me? know. Yeah, Dave, did you like this episode? Yes,
2: I sure did. Dave, Jordan.
1: then I would love to get an email from you at don't let start from podcast me? at gmail.com. Yes. That's how we should do all our communication <laughs> from now on. And I'll pretend to be you when I reply, and it'll be Whoa. very confusing. And we have a Twitter at Don't Just Let's be Pod. be monosyllabic. Yeah. <laughs> we have a Twitter at Don't Let's Pod. I'm going to spend all week or two weeks sharing all the stuff Kurt talked about, you know, links and all this stuff, because we talk about so many different it's things. It's going to be a in. Yeah, exactly. Two technical notes. Uh, one is that you might notice there's no intro to our conversation because the recorder wasn't running and, hey, hey. I, and I didn't notice, but, you know, we I caught everything, but there's no like, hey, everyone. Second, you we didn't were, miss anything. Yeah. And uh, we recorded this outdoors and you're going to hear a lot of uh, ambient noise. Yeah. A lot of uh, police
2: sirens and listen to it and like it.
1: Yeah. So just be aware. This is outdoors. If you hear like a car honk, don't worry. It's not in your room. Yeah no one's honking at you this is just some irate person in uh, an undisclosed location in new york city so listen let's not delay let's listen to our let's listen <laughs> wide-ranging exciting wonderful and wonderful interview with kurt hoffman
0: I studied at the Eugene Ettore School of Accordion on Victory Boulevard in Staten Island. And my family wasn't Southern Italian, but uh, it was cheaper to get an accordion than a piano, and uh, my best friend who lived next door was playing accordion, and I wanted to play accordion. How old were you when you started in that school? You mentioned the other instruments in high school. I started accordion when I was about 9, I believe, wow. so I was in 4th grade. See, that's how you become a
2: good musician.
1: Yeah, I know. I never I st- we both started late. I especially started late. I started when I was like 16,
0: Well, you don't get you don't, you don't necessarily get that good if you start on accordion, I can report you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I I have I have a few accordions at home actually. Oh, yeah? And I the I just still can't do the the buttons. I I have a few things I can do. I wrote an instrumental to learn the buttons where it goes uh-huh. up and down. It's like yeah, a melody yeah, 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 that yeah. works. But the second I have to make leaps, even little leaps, I'm like, I don't know where I am no, anymore. No, it's
0: it's really one of those things where, when I go back onto the accordion, I have I feel like I definitely have this like naturalness to the way I use the bellows that I can see a lot of. I've had a few piano playing friends of mine who are excellent pianists, you know, far better musicians than I am, who have taken up the accordion and it really took them years to get to the point where their bellowing sounded their bellows action sounded natural, you know, and so I, I have that, but when I pick it up now, that's exactly the problem I notice is that that ability to make the leap blind, which you have to do on the left hand, you, you really have to be playing it regularly to be able to, to do the blind leaps. Yeah. You, you can't, it, it's hard. So that was how I got into music, and I had a wonderful introduction to music via Sandra Garglioni, who was a uh, was probably 20 when I was studying with her and had a beehive hairdo, and three inch long fingernails that you couldn't (laughs) believe she could actually play accordion with but she could and she would uh, as I progressed with accordion she would, at the end of each lesson, grab a fake book and ask me what song I wanted to learn for next week. And she would, and I, at some point, you know, I'd started off learning extremely simple little exercises she would devise on the spot. And then, but I remember later she was giving me things like White Room by Cream because I'd ask for it. Wow. And she would <laughs> do some like a little simple arrangement rendition of it or, you know, Herb Alpert numbers or whatever. But um, so that uh, got me into pop music. And then I picked up a clarinet and saxophone in high school and uh, took a break from music when I went to art school. But then when I was getting out of art school, it was 1979 and I was living in the East Village and music was exploding in the East Village. I went to Cooper Union, which is, you know, three blocks away from CBGB's. And uh, there was all kinds of excitement because of the way art and music were combining. And a lot of art spaces were having interesting music, a lot of Clubs were having artful music and, you know, it seemed like a lot of people were being in bands that seemed like art. And that was what attracted me to it. And, got you know, at that point I got an alto saxophone at a pawn shop on 3rd Avenue, started practicing it. And at that point I think my biggest influence was James Chance. You know, I guess it was right around the time of the No New York album and I really liked, I mean, that seemed the epitome of, like, you know, artfully being a band, you know, making a statement. Like, DNA was, like, this great band. That, do, do you, know, do you no. know DNA? Do you know Arta Lindsay? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so Arta Lindsay's first band was this uh, trio called uh, DNA, and they were fantastic, and they would play 15-minute sets, and, and their songs were all, like, one minute long. They were completely abstract. Arta would sing these indecipherable yowling things (laughs) and you know and he played his guitar the way he always plays yeah (laughs) i wanted to ask about that actually (laughs) that was the uh, art music milieu that got me back into music and got me into bands and that got me to they might be giants because the kind of bands that i started to be in were ones where i got into arranging for multiple instruments. So first I had this band called Off Beach that was like a nine piece band with three saxophones, two guitars, bass and drums, and it was sort of like a no wave minimalist kind of minimalist. thing. Yeah, a lot of, <laughs> lot of like, band. well minimalist in the sense of like structurally, a lot of re- mm. lot of repetitions, you know, oh, a lot okay. of a lot of like Philip you know,
1: Glassy. <laughs>
0: yeah, but more in the... Well, this is also coming out of a period where, you know, Branka and Reese Chadmore on the scene and doing a lot of droney, repetitious stuff where, you know, if you play something... Almost the same way, often enough, your ear starts to hear the overtones and you start to get into a more sort of weird trance, yeah, I mean you get you get you get audio hallucinations yeah, and so forth, I know what
1: you mean no.
0: so that was so that that was in that period where off beach came, but it was also like because I was writing for three horns, it was three saxophones it, that was that was where I was also starting to bring in pop music influences and big band, you know, in a way it was like this little big band. It was done in a collaboration with this uh, bass player, Michael Brown, who composed most of the music for the guitar and, and bass. Uh, and that eventually, that band split up after we played at the Noise Festival, organized by Thurston Moore, at the uh, at White Columns Gallery. And uh, we were actually named Best New Band of the Year by the guy in Interview Magazine. Sorry, I'm forgetting his name. But anyway, mm-hmm. but it was sort of like this exciting moment of like, wow, we did this. We did this thing, and it's actually getting attention, but then me and Michael had aesthetic differences, and he went off on a different project, but I continued to do another nine-piece band, this time with violins, Uh, because I I happened to have a friend uh, who played violin, and that led to another violin, and that led to The Ordinaires, which wound up stabilizing as two violins, cello, two guitars, bass, drums, two saxophones with me yeah. me playing tenor sax usually and me writing most of the arrangements for the first many years of the band and then, uh, but also the other saxophonist, Fritz Van Orden uh, after whom the band was jokingly named. I was saying, well, can't we name ourselves the Van Ordenaires? <laughs> uh, so then we were doing all these instrumentals and this was at the point where all that grimness and doominess of the New York No Wave scene was starting to get a little old. It was kind of like, we're, we're actually not miserable all the time. We're like, <laughs> or at the point where people feel like they have to wear black and right. it has to be dissonant and it has to be angry, at some point you realize you're expressing a fairly narrow range of human experience. And, and that was when... So I think it was in that moment where... Uh, You know, eclecticism, which is something that comes up in music at many intervals in culture, it was starting to bloom really a lot in the, you know, in the 80s and like, I don't know, around 83 or something like that. And so the Ordinaires were a band that was very polystylistic, still had a bit of the traces of the minimalism from off-beach, still had several of the people from off-beach, so it was kind of a no-wave band that had grown into this more eclectic pop confection Brings us to how we met They Might Be Giants. <laughs> well, you keep flowing <laughs> through all of our stage here. Which, is, first pages. which yeah. is that one night uh, we played, the Ordinaires played at this place called 8BC. Yeah. It was yeah. one of the greatest clubs in the East Village in the early 80s, run by Cornelius Conboy and Dennis Gatra in this old Cornelius building. Cornelius Conboy. Yeah. Real Cornelius, name? Real name. Wow. yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> he's, he's, he was great. And, uh, and, and the, one, of the, one of the great things about uh, 8 BC was they got this old building on this block where like one side of the block was like totally bombed out and it was like, this is like New York in the 80s where it was pretty sketchy, but it was kind of gentrifying in the sense that artists, you know, were moving into it. And 8 BC was kind of the epitome of that. They took this like, you know, dilapidated old building that might have been the only built. I think there were like vacant lots on either side of it, and they removed most of the floor on the first floor, meaning that you went in the bill you went in, and then you took a Everything stairs to fell. down to what <laughs> to what was the basement. Yeah. However, they left some of the first floor in the back, and that created the stage. So you had this stage that was like one floor above the audience. You know, like uh. it was like the size of the oh, basement. Wow. So it was like you know, the stage was very. So it was very theatrical, and they had a big red curtain and. Uh, and a live rabbit, and and it was very, it was very much an eclectic. Again, it's it's kind of like by 83, 82, 83, It's kind of like punk, and a lot of these dark angry things have already had time to like rattle around for years and now there's kind of a real hunger for something else and a lot of it is like, you know, so suddenly you had places like APC where you might have everything ranging from like noise music to really weird Goofy skits by performance artists. You might have somebody throwing pig blood around. You might have, you know, bizarre bands of all sorts. So there was this night where the band that was on the same build with us was They Might Be Giants, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'd met them before much. I think that was. I think. I think Fritz, the other sax player in the Ordinaires, knew Linnell a little bit from before that. but we, I basically met them that night. And at, that was a point where the Ordinaires were now really popular at 8BC. We would pack the house whenever we played. I watched it, there.
1: there's a YouTube video of, of you at 8BC. Really?
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. So the ordinaires were at the peak of their feeble powers. Uh, we were, you know, packing, packing. Well, we weren't feeble. I mean, it was, it was a great band. You know, it was nine players, and and it was a big sound. It was already, it was fun. It was eclectic, and you know, in a way, a very good match for being on the same bill with They Might Be Giants, who at the time were two guys in a tape recorder and some props and you know, some giant uh, w- paper mache w- hands and yeah. And if you have any more
1: stuff. details on that that stuff, because there's no videos of that stuff or barely any photos either so for fans of they might be giants it's like it's like this big mystery like what were those 84 85 shows like well a little you know? bit well the funny thing about that they're like very one, undocumented right right well a little
0: the, the it's a little bit my fault for the first one because we had we had had we went on first and then they went on and so and they did have a curtain that came down you know between <laughs> it was very theatrical yeah and um Oh, and the guy who did sound at HBC was John Gernand, who later yeah, became the right. touring guy for uh, They Might Be Giants, mm-hmm. doing their sound. So The Ordinaires have their set. We pack the place. Great set. We're all jazzed. And after our set, I'm out front on the sidewalk having a cigarette and talking to friends, and and I gather that they might be giants are on, but I'm sort of in my... I'm, I'm having my after-the-set we, we both There's know that, like, yeah. So <laughs> it's sort of like, I, you know... But at some point, I peek in to see what's going on and I see ah fuck everybody had left the audience (laughs) it it was like I mean it was really like the bartender and two other people and (laughs) they might be giants who are (laughs) <laughs> who always give it their all? You know, they always they always do the good show. And I think I think there's also just the thing is because half of the band was the was was a tape recording of them, that could not be stopped. So their hyper caffeinated, yeah. super slick energy was going to be there whether there was one person in the ha- there was there was no changing the energy level of a They Might Be Giants show. It was gonna it was gonna be a full on one. And I saw them do it, and I think I saw some of it. I mean, I felt so sort of. Embarrassed for them because you know I've, yeah. you know I've gone I've had experiences like that too. It's you know it's just like ah and and of course in the longer run the irony is you know there they were playing Sequin Fiddle for us when you know yeah. two years <laughs> later it would be just like you know they would be very successful and the Ordinaires wound up opening for them many 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 times thanks to their generosity. I had
2: a question about the Ordinaires. I'm very curious about the dynamic. Of a nine person band and how you guys work together because that's fairly big
0: yeah it was it was um, surprisingly easy for a mm-hmm. number of years, but we wound up sticking I mean we had just enough attention and success to prompt us to keep going for, like, almost a decade, and, uh, yeah, it's difficult. I mean, on on the one hand, because the band was very reliant on arrangements as opposed to group improv, Mm. that resolved a lot of common problems with bands, that if you put an arrangement in front of a band, then everybody sort of has their basic marching orders, and then people are more thinking, like, oh, well, what can I do with this, or the arranger you know, give space to the various people and you know, here's where you have space to do something, here's where you have space to do something. And it seemed like that basically on the music level, basically sorted out, you know, getting everybody on the same page. You know, on the professional level, it was difficult because it was very hard to make money. We didn't know, we didn't really have a very strong idea of how we could sell ourselves, you know, to a pop market. We had done something that was really of the moment and made a lot of sense for the East Village art scene. And when you're doing something locally, you know, there's tons of musicians in New York. You can Everybody can make it to a gig on a Thursday night in the East Village. It's it's not hard to get people together for that, to get people to tour, to get people to, you know, do the things you need to do to be a successful pop ad. That, that proved to be very difficult. And that was, you know, something we, you know, Tempers flared, people burned out, and yeah. eventually. But you know, but well, we stuck at it for quite a while. Did a bunch of touring and lived to tell about it.
1: <laughs> um, I have one speci- I have a few specific questions about the Ordinaires. Yeah, what's the process of titling an instrumental song? Because uh, there's some interesting. Yeah, I don't titles, know. I mean, I guess it, it seemed know. like
0: well, with the Ordinaires, there had been this thing that when I was at art school, I was painting an altarpiece. That was an idea, like a multi-panel altarpiece, and I had them. Different. Pan- it wasn't religious, but I had them dedicated to various virtu- virtues like hope and grace and things like that. And then, and so a bunch of Ordinaire's song titles at the very beginning and off-beach song titles came from that. I think there's like a song called Hope and a song called Grace. And right. and, mm-hmm. and I think that because of the those one-word titles. Other people who started writing songs for the group, like Fritz and Angela, started to also do one-word titles for their pieces, and that's... Uh, so it's a little bit just random. That's one thing happened, then another.
1: In the in the case of Gridlock, because I that one popped out because it sounds like what the title is. Right, right, right. Maybe yeah. more literally than the other songs. Right, right, right. So was that one where the title came first and you like let it make it sound like that or vice versa? I don't
0: know. I mean, that <laughs> one was written by Fritz and Fritz had a good sense of humor and I think he was just <laughs> thinking like, oh, you know, rather, rather than doing this abstract piece and claiming it was abstract, why not <laughs> mm-hmm. just like imagine it being gridlock or like I think the song he wrote before that was called Industry, which was also another grinding yeah. repetitious sort of yeah. thing. So I think, I think in his, those cases, the title's definitely... Uh, referred to the mood of the music.
1: Yeah, it's a great one to listen to, like, in the car. Yeah. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> so were, were there primary
2: songwriters? Did anybody, you know, if they had something, they would come in and sort of present it to the group?
0: Yeah, I mean, it it sort of evolved, but it was like it started off being mainly me and me, Joe, and Angela Mm -hmm. uh, writing material. And then as time went on, Fritz became a more and more important uh, writer for the group. And then uh, some other people in the group, Peter Moffat, Angela Babin, contributed a couple things here and there, um, sort of riffing on the style that was already established, but doing their own turn with it.
1: I also think it's funny, both you me and dave all put out releases where the final track is called the last song oh
0: that's good. oh yeah i noticed that
1: amazingly <laughs> original idea
0: <laughs> well i don't think the last song was ever our last song on the album though i think it's ramayana actually
1: oh really on YouTube, the youtube playlist I just, that i i, just, listened I, just, to I, it I, I called
0: it th- i called that one the last song just because it had an era of finality yeah it, it, it
1: did i really like i actually listened to it's, it right before it leave. sounds
0: like i think it might be like the sixth song on a nine song Let's album see, or that's what i did that. i thought i was clever
1: yeah no I it's the middle song oh
2: well exactly
1: And then I saw you guys on um, the Joe Franklin show. Oh, yeah, that was really fun. Joe Franklin's another interesting figure in, in They Might Be Giants lore, because yeah. apparently they've been on the Joe Franklin show, as they put it, like countless times, and yet there's no footage except one second of footage that exists. Oh, wow. There's no, these tapes are apparently lost forever. I don't know where they are, but... Yeah. They Joe Franklin seems like an interesting. The show seems like an interesting oh show. absolutely so what, what was that?
0: Well, experience? I mean, the funny thing was i don't I don't think it was anything too interesting for us other than that I think we played a song, and me and Angela. Got to talk to Joe for a little bit, but the interesting part of the episode we were on was that they had Tiny Tim on. So that in oh, the yeah. green room before we were there with Tiny, <laughs> I who I didn't realize is like six foot six. You know, that's that, <laughs> oh. I, didn't, I didn't realize the joke about Tiny Tim is that he's actually enormous. Okay. <laughs> but the but the funny thing also is he I don't know how familiar you are with Tiny Tim. He, Not too familiar. He, a little. So, I know what he so looks like. So his thing was that that he had had this, you know, he had appeared on Laugh In. Which was like the Saturday Night Live of the late '60s, and uh, had a big hit with this song, "Tiptoe Through the Tulips," mm. which is the That's right. song that Nick Lu- Lucas popularized in 1925, and. Uh, and Tiny sang it in this like freakish falsetto, uh, yeah. <laughs> kind, of, kind, kind of like, kind of like, you couldn't even tell what he was going for. It's sort of like, is it a? Because he was wearing kind of like trippy proto glam makeup. Maybe he had lipstick or something in kind of like had long Snowden hair. It, yeah, except it doesn't have that Berlin thing about it. It was has more like of a San Francisco tripped out thing <laughs> to it. So you think of it, so he seems like this very odd, ambiguous, trippy sort of intergender figure. And then you have Joe Franklin, who's like this (laughs) sort of... Straight-laced. He doesn't seem... You know, cultured in kind of a highfalutin way, he seems very. He looks like a cop. He looks yeah, like an old like he, detective. Exactly. Yeah, Joe Joe Franklin seems like, like you know Hoover he's he's like, he's, he's, cop, like, he's like an ordinary guy. He's just like he's like an ordinary guy who would seem to have like nothing in common with Tiny Tim, who is this freak show. And yet, <laughs> what t- turned out to happen was they're both. They both are way into music from the twenties and thirties, and mm. they could just like talk all day about these obscure yeah. hits from the twenties wow. and thirties. And they were both. They, they were like. Oh my god, Joe Franklin and Tiny Tim are like peas in a
1: pod. <laughs> <laughs> one thing item. that one thing that stuck out in the, your appearance on Joe Franklin is he says the phrase there's nothing ordinary about the ordinary like he six said that time. 1200 times. Yeah. Right, well there you go. That's that's the
0: part of him where it's kind of like, yeah, there's something a little bit banal about <laughs> Joe Franklin, <laughs> <laughs> but he's very he's so enthusiastic, yeah. you know, you kind he kind of <laughs> loops you in but there's something wrong there's something mm-hmm. wrong with Joe Franklin
3: This is uh what they say a group that's called the Ordinaires but not ordinary right group uh, No no hardly They're no, really Andrew. weird and they're not ordinary they're getting mass mass attention and their videos it got a name the uh,
0: well this 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 song is called Kashmir and we're in the, in which we're trying to do for Led Zeppelin what he did for Mozart in that last day. <laughs> <tape.
3: laughs> and it goes something like this by the not ordinary ordinaires.
1: Yeah, I saw him on stage. He he introduced they might be giants at a show. I think it was Irving Plaza or Bowery Ballroom. Or those. Well, that's the funny thing because they it might It's very be, weird. One
0: of the one of the early <laughs> props, which I, well, you were saying people don't know what the props were at those yeah, early they yeah. might be giants shows. But I think I think most was of them was he a them, prop
1: that they would bring out.
0: <laughs> well, I was going to say there's that there's that uh, picture of the old guys. Yeah, yeah. On the head, head on a stick. And I think it's in the Don't Let Start video. Yeah, right? yeah. In fact, I was thinking, I think a lot of the props from the early shows make an appearance in Don't Let Start, like the the feathers, The question marks. The, uh, yeah, the, I think don't, the, um, paper mache hands appear in that video at some point? Not in that video, Not, but they
1: wear the carpets on their heads with the, the carp- Okay, so there, <laughs> there's that. Paper mache hands are on the cover of their 85 demo album. Oh, okay, there it is. You're right. But it's this tiny, grainy, you, you can barely see what's even happening. Oh, okay, it, I knew I, I see, saw them somewhere. Okay, so here's what I remember. So I don't remember their show
0: very well from the 8BC show, mm-hmm. but then I remember seeing them at another club. Okay, one thing they had was they had like a... a a pre-recorded countdown that was like Flansburg doing some. Yeah. Have you, do you guys know about that? <laughs> two episodes ago, we we just uh, did a, dissected it. Yeah. Oh, okay, so you know about that, that was, re- which okay. I had never heard. All of the before. references. Well, I, I mm-hmm. mean, which I basically remember yeah. that it gets. You know, just when you think they've reached zero, it's yeah, like yeah. so, yeah. i hate to be the negative one, but yeah, yeah. you'd be negative <laughs> two if blah wow. blah blah. Mm-hmm. That, that's so, pretty much verbatim, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, and then they, so they had that. They had the the fezzes. Uh, then then I can't really remember what the shtick was with the. Paper paper mache hands except it was kind of like you know give us a big hand and then they had these <laughs> big hands it was some kind it was some kind wow. of like thing about the big hands and then they throw the big hands into the audience and it's wow. sort of ridiculous <laughs> um, did people like fight for them I don't remember fight that. For the fingers. Or, uh, and then it okay. would know and then of course yeah, there was the thing that they kept doing for years so it's not a secret which was uh the giant shepherd's crook which they would uh yeah they called the stick the stick yeah yeah, we also covered the stick uh, uh, early because because then otherwise i mostly remember those early shows as being you know the songs from their first two albums were Uh, there any
2: songs that stuck out to you as you know being
0: yeah anything that drew
1: you to the the music of the band favorites that you had
0: at this point it's a little hard to say like when i started i I think that probably when i saw their first couple of gigs i was more aware of what their sound was and what they were doing rather than the particular songs uh I mean, I know early on, I really loved Purple Toupee, mm. and and I knew my my then girlfriend really liked She's an Angel, and uh. and I and I remember <laughs> and I remember when Flansburgh played me, uh, Birdhouse when they had first recorded it, and I'd never heard it before, and I remember wow. and it was really funny because I didn't like it, <laughs> <laughs> and and it's funny because I came to later really like it a lot, but it, it was odd to hear. To remember what it sounded like to me before I... Yeah. You know, because there is a thing with some especially complicated music uh, where you kind of have to hear it a couple of times for it to really all fall into place. And I remember it seeming very wordy, <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, wasn't, it, it wasn't really that melodic. You know, a lot of it is very... Uh, the like a lot, a lot yeah. of one That's note. That's true. Note even things. says the
1: words one note in the lyrics.
0: Yeah, and, <laughs> and uh, so I remember thinking like, well, okay, it's very, it seems very, you know, and, and I could tell that the words were very, if not labored over, they were very sort of knotty. You know, there, were a lot, there was a lot of, yeah. you know, they were obviously you know, lots of... The song was winking at me incessantly about all these lyrics. And uh, so I guess I guess my early impression was like, oh, that'll never be a hit because it's too, it's too complicated. You know, it's not like, you know, Don't Let Start did this great job of sounding like a, a cheerful pop song about love. And it's only when you sort of stopped and listened to the lyrics that you realized that it was a total weird, surrealist thing that didn't really add up to the thing it seemed like. This one seemed like it... Really was an odd song, an oddly literary song that you know probably be good for listening to at two in the morning, but of course, then it became their biggest hit.
1: (laughs) It it is, yeah. You know, we did an episode that was usually we do multiple songs per episode where we pick them apart, but Birdhouse took up like 90 minutes because we were really just going into every word, (laughs) which is now what the show basically is all the time, (laughs) Um, right. But yeah, it's a sh- it's a song that is like it spans centuries of storytelling in it. Like it's referencing all these l- old things and mythology, and then it's it's kind of then putting you in this modern day place where it's a nightlight in a little kid's bedroom, which is a very like, you know, every it's like a very childhood kind of memory that everyone has, which I think might explain why people feel warm to the song.
0: Though I you did know, know uh, though I'd known John. Lin- I was you know at some point I became friends with John Linnell and yeah, uh, yeah. and at some point I noticed that he had a light n- nightlight in his bathroom that seemed to be the one in, <laughs> described <laughs> oh, in Birdhouse really? and it oh was like God. oh oh there's an actual you know, of course I, I I don't know I don't know what the relationship of that nightlight is to the song but it, it yeah. seemed like oh it it is, there actually was this mundane detail that he kind of spun into something uh, more more interesting
1: that brings me to something I always want to ask our guests people who know them is there ever any conversations about their lyrics even just casually just whether you're you know just either even if it's just joking around or whatever but like is there any insight into their people behind the curtain yeah their process or what their do you think that fans kind of understand what they're going for? Or do you think there's there's something they're not quite oh, getting? Oh, yeah. I think they know.
0: I think they know exactly what those songs are about. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think they know. Yeah. And they know that they're talking right to them. Yeah. <laughs> and what they seem to mean is exactly what they mean. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, like Bill, Bill told us, like, oh, he remembers, like Linnell saying, "Wake up, smell the cat food," in conversation, and uh-huh. then it made it into "Don't Let's Start." You know, like right, right, right. any moments like that. And either, either John. Roadblocks. Things where you're like, oh, he—they put that in a song. That thing, like I've put—I've made songs about things me and Dave have experienced together. I and never have that Dave may not even recognize because I hide it in the lyrics. You know, I abstract it. Right. But right. there's there's stuff like that. I don't know if you have any. Anything comes to mind? Stuff. If not, that's okay.
0: So one day we were, everybody was here in this garden, and this uh, strange bug comes out, and it, it looks like a combination of a bee and a moth, and uh, <laughs> everybody was guessing what it what it was and throwing out names and uh, uh things like the moth bee and so on and apparently that uh turned into a song or at least it evidently did when Linell produced the song some weeks later <laughs> that's that's See, great that's how you do it yeah
1: any observations about the differences in the um personalities of John and John like their work process or their work or how they approach things well I mean it's
0: funny because they're just uh, I mean they're 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 just really different people I mean I guess that's the thing that's I mean I think it's so well noted that it's probably redundant to say that oh, on, on the one it's hand fine. they're both named this might john. be someone's first on the, on, episode on the one hand they're both named john so there's that there's, you hear the, that this is a scoop <laughs> there's the there's the irony they're both named john however the two johns could not be more different yeah <laughs> <laughs> except for the fact that they're both and they might be giants and they're both wicked funny and smart and uh, and i was thinking of how you know certainly their songwriting is of a piece with how they speak personally, they're both very, when I first got to know them, I remember feeling like, oh my God, I used to think I kind of had a sense of humor, but like I wasn't used to being around people. And this also Bill Krauss. he was kind of like, mm. you know, had become part of the culture of they might be giants and kind of had a similar personality, like the speed and the frequency with which they could say witty things was kind of mind blowing to me. I felt like there was this like, like I, it had never occurred to me that you'd even want to be that funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, for people that were not comedians. You know, like and and yeah. I, I remember I was on tour with them once when uh, we were we were arriving in Montreal and Flansburg's looking at the tour schedule and it's like, what the fuck? We're going to this gig and it's it's part of a. Comedy—it's f- part of the just for laughs comedy huh. festival. Mm-hmm. What the fuck? Ah! <laughs> yeah. It's like because, like you know, you call call Jamie the manager. And say like, what the hell are you do Because that was—that's like the one thing we have specifically said all along is, you know, we're not a joke. We're band. not a joke <laughs> band. <laughs> yeah. You know, that that's, this is a it's, frequent it's, topic. It's on like one one thing. You know, it's one thing to be and and it's true. It's one thing to be witty. But it's one thing to evoke the Dr. Demento show; it's another thing to be on the, you know, to be the Dr. Demento show, or to be, yeah. or to be a joke. And uh, in in the event, it turned out that the concert really was just a concert with their fans, and it was just a music concert, and all was well. But uh, and it, and Jamie, with his powers of persuasion, was able to communicate to, <laughs> that to John Flansburgh in such a way that the car continued to drive to the venue, and we <laughs> sound checked, and everything went back to normal. But
1: I have to say. That- some of my best uh, audiences. I've been a musical guest on comedy nights, uh-huh. and I've just done not funny songs, and yeah. it's the best crowds. Oh, Because they really listen to the lyrics compared to normal right. audiences. Because they're they're attuned to it. Yeah, they're used to hearing people saying things into a microphone. Right, so right, right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. what I notice yeah. is when I played these these shows over the years, um, is that they really respond to like every line, yeah. like really well, and I, I love that. I wanted to ask about. So Kiss Me Son of God, you're not on that side. I was in
0: India that day, so I okay. so that's so that's why I'm not on that one. Because
1: the first thing I thought of when we started emailing was, I'm gonna ask him about playing on Kiss Me Son of God and then the second I researched it, it was like, Oh, you're not on it. But uh So there's a logical answer. There's a logical What, what were you doing in, in India? I
0: was uh in Ahmedabad at the Kanoria Art Center for two months and uh, I had a studio space there. It was just great and got turned on to all kinds of music and made friends. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience and made New York seem a whole lot different when I got back to it. Yeah. It was very it was interesting experience. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, there, and that led to like, I, I wasn't, and I also wasn't sure if I wanted to be in The Ordinaire's when I got back. That oh, was wow. Better, that was where Because of the
1: music had, influence of...
0: Partly, I think, well, I think partly, you know, in retrospect, I keep thinking, like, well, why didn't I leave The Ordinaires after 1984? Because I sort of feel like there really was a moment where The Ordinaires were very much of its period, very much sort of making a chess move in the game of art music that was the perfect move and then it continued on for another five years partly out of this desire to somehow cross over you know and that was when we hooked up with Jamie Kitman who really tried to get us you know, tried got us record deals got us funding to go on tours I
1: watched the video for music video for Kashmir uh-huh. that was a really cool video yeah, I don't that's know if you wanted be, yeah, to talk about no, that I, all, I love that video that was a really yeah. awesome video yeah, yeah. in a it's, desert or something where, it's, where not,
0: it's on a beach It's I forget which <laughs> beach it is it's like in Sandy Hook or something but it's mm. uh, actually on that video at some point we have these like bullshit subtitles that don't have to do with the lyrics of the song because, <laughs> yeah. uh, but because i had just come back from india i had made a side trip to uh, uh bangalore and gotten this uh, i guess the language in there is kannada I th- is what it's called the, the particular southern indian language and i had this uh, uh English, Canada dictionary and had cut out and scanned a few sentences that wound up getting used as subtitles in that video sort of nonsensically, oh, cool. but then when we submitted it to MTV, we had to provide evidence of what the, what those things said. They were like so afraid oh, it would yeah, say, sure. s- uh. say something that they would be legally culpable right. for, yeah. right. uh, so I had to like go back, find the exact phrase, and it was like, you know, I would like that flower or something uh, like that, random.
1: Funny. So we're sort of at the timeline where this is around flood now, and you're opening for them on the flood tour. Right. I definitely wanted to get more details on that because that's a crazy time for They Might Be Giants. Yeah. And you're like a witness to it. Yeah. Uh, so I'm interested in what that tour was like. Where Where was the tour? The Ordinaires wound up opening for They Might Be Giants on their uh, Eng- U- their UK tour
0: and the the, the England and Scotland uh, part of the uh, flood tour and yeah it was great cuz that was right um you know it was it was right after it was after birdhouse basically yeah. so they had uh, incredibly enthusiastic uh, fans and um i don't know what they made of the Ordinaires, i gathered that was they, that was my they, uh, next question how is you know, being an opening band well is- <laughs> it's just like it's just like the way it is for being an open i mean it was pretty good i mean i think the thing about being an opening band is you're always at a, a a deficit you know you could and it's just because like people came to see some other band and they have and the, it's almost like this joke that they have to sit through some band they don't want to see so like you're so like if you win them <laughs> over you know so we won people over reasonably well people enjoyed it reasonably well but mm-hmm. you know it's just not the same as when we play to our own crowd or um or even when we did a, a couple of tours where we opened for camper van beethoven and we actually did very uh, well for that that I think I think we even I think we even blew Camper van Beethoven away a couple times, but you know that was wow.
1: that was um, and one of my favorite bands also. Yeah,
0: well, they're really great. Yeah, but uh, and it was kind of a good match because uh, the audience was a similar sort of audience in some ways. Did you like touring? I was I was ambivalent about touring. I mean, there's something really fun about doing lots of gigs, and when you do a great gig somewhere, you feel terrific about it. Actually, the real problem with being on tour. Like uh, all the all that they might be giants, you know. When I was playing with They Might Be Giants, when I, uh, which is I guess, moving to the next. Well, you all get to yeah, <laughs> the next level where like now I'm in now I'm in their band. So you know, all of their audiences are love them, you know, so it's every, every night is a great gig, Mm -hmm. but, but then it's like the job you can't come home from, you know, it's like that, Mm -hmm. that was the hardest thing for me. It's like, at, at first it was just like really exciting to have all these gigs. I had never played on all these big stages before. I had never played for so many big audiences before. I mean, there was a, a festival we played, somewhere in Pennsylvania once and there were like 40,000 people there. And, wow. and it was like, I remember like Flansburg was on stage and said like, you little ants in the back there, I can hardly see, can you just, I can't tell if you can hear us. If you can, could you raise your hands? And, you know, sure enough, the little ants yeah. in the back <laughs> all, all raise their hands and you realize, wow, there's really 40,000 people that can hear us. And, yeah. you know, and it was very good training for being on stage. It, it definitely got me to the point of realizing, it doesn't matter how many people are in the audience you you always play to the audience and the audience could be two people sometimes it's harder to play for two people than to play for a lot of people but once it's just sort of like an audience once it's more than like 40 people it's it's kind of always the same you know you have to you have to lead you have to coax the audience where you want it to go and the audience generally follows
1: well i want to ask how did that come about that you joined their first ever full band cuz that's a big moment for They Might Be Giants. It, right. And you know, well, it still I think affects it, them to this day that they did that.
0: Well, the short story of it is... Um, oh, well, one thing I'd, I'd wanted to say earlier. When we did meet each other at 8 BC, The mm-hmm. Ordinaires and They Might Be Giants, you could sort of see that both bands were doing the thing that was kind of in the air then, that they're both these very poly-stylistic bands, and they're both getting away from you know the alternative the art music having to be dour or having it be angry or punkish that both bands are sort of sort of radically so with they might be giants they're being like you know yes yes there were some dark notes on their first two albums but basically they're satirical they're funny they're silly as fuck and almost to the point where the the grating thing they're doing the punkish thing they're doing is they're being too fucking happy you know it's like yeah. they're they're kind right. of being it's too you Bill Krauss would say like would say like yeah we mixed we would mix their songs and then Flaggsworth would say like No, speed it up. It has to be faster. And then and then (laughs) Mm -hmm. so they they take the fast songs and make them even faster so they'd be even more perky, basically. So there was this kind of like Yeah, yeah, there's this caffeinated (laughs) But there was also overlap to a certain degree. I mean, the ordinaires were more mellow. The more than they might be giants. We didn't drink nearly as much coffee and had more people that were on weed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we were kind of we were kind of like the punk rock version of a prog band or something. But there was this overlap, and then that meant that we were both into listening to lots of kind of music and. Uh, I moved to Williamsburg. I got to know John and John. We had lots of friends to, in common. There was a whole community of musicians and artists in the neighborhood. It was the eastward migration. You know, when I was in art school, everybody was in the East Village. You could get apartments for like $50 a month there. And oh it was, my God. well, or actually my apartment was $100 a month when I moved into the East Village and Yeah. I mean, I'd knew, known them musically a bit. How did it come to be? It seems like I met them and then immediately I knew them completely or something it's strange. <laughs> I guess it must something gradual must have happened. It's, it's all a bit vague. But it, but it, but it, but in short we were all we were all living in Williamsburg and we were all socializing a lot and there were a lot of other people doing various musical projects that John and John were supportive of and I would, you know, we would just sort of be part of this whole milieu. And part of it was that me and John Linnell were now neighbors and we both played woodwinds and I proposed oh. doing duets. And John was like really into it. Oh, and wow. the first time we played duets, we did this really ridiculous thing, which was he wanted to practice his bass saxophone more. I was learning bass clarinet. So we got these Mozart duets. I would oh, play wow. the top line on bass clarinet and he would play the bottom line on bass saxophone. So it was really this just ridiculous, I mean, it, it worked. Yeah. You, know, you, you could do it. Do you it, have recordings of this No, stuff? I, mean, it, that would be I mean, I'm sure it would have been sort of rough because this, you know, I think it-, it
1: I mean, I'd want to hear anyone doing that.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it was, I mean, it was fun. It was, I think it was probably really rough and very crude at the beginning. But anyway, so we started to play duets and then we started to venture off into some slightly more practical instruments we would do clarinet duets and we were playing a lot of uh mozart and uh we would do the uh teleman uh, canonical duets you know somebody starts one bar earlier and then you're, you're both reading the same piece so of like music. row
1: row row your boat
0: yeah exactly except it's a whole piece of baroque music and it's very cleverly you know it works out the yeah. harmonics in the these, and these you know. they
1: have they, i feel like they have a song like that i'm like was like the kids' album or something. Or oh, they the might. One. I mean, yeah. John's
0: ri- written some some canons that we've played. Uh, oh, wow. And then, I haven't uh, seen uh, you in forever?
1: Yeah, I haven't. Do you know that one? What is it it's called? on their kids' album. It's called I Haven't Seen You in Forever. Oh, I don't know that And that it's a cappella, it's yeah. just Liddell's voice and so it's him singing lines and then the other one sings it a few seconds after but it starts, like, it almost turns into a conversation.
2: Yeah, it starts and to intersect in places. Oh, interesting. separates again and kind of weaves around each other. Oh, and
1: it's fun. all about being antisocial and wanting your friend who came over to leave. And oh, it's that's very really funny. funny. It's really good. Wow, that's great. Um, <laughs> actually, so wait, before the Apollo Teen tour, I, I might be wrong, but before that, you play on Sifton. <laughs> instrumental. Right, on, that, a, that's true. On, they, yeah, I at some point, mind. yeah, I
0: think that that was that was the first thing I ever did with them. Yeah, is, so they is there they anything
1: had, behind that?
0: How that came about? I think at that point we're just like friends in Williamsburg, and they know the or- I mean, they were fans of the Ordinaires. They they would come to our gigs, and we and we did play. They opened for us once, and then they were on a bill with us at CBGB's, where nobody was really the headliner, but we were both on it, and we were both it was sort of before they their meteoric rise. Yeah. So, but so they knew. They knew me as a sax player and a friend and they had this instrumental and they said, Oh, you know, come and come and play this and it was
1: <laughs> It's one of my favorite random songs of theirs. I, I always I always really loved it. Yeah, yeah, it's and, fun. Yeah. Um so you did that and then I think the Apollo eighteen tour comes after that. So my my original question was like, what was the decision of joining them as a member of the band for a really long time? Like that's a big decision, right? Like
0: well, I think a couple things. One, one was that I did somewhere around 1990 break up with the Ordinaires, and the okay. Ordinaires then finally expired, which was great because they were probably five years past their <laughs> sell-by date. <laughs> no, I mean, we did some great things in the last few years, but it was it was, uh, it was was time to stop. Well, I guess after that I did this band called the Band of Weeds, which was another nine-piece band, but it was using Fletcher Henderson circa 1927 as its model, so it was like oh, okay. with... Uh, uh, the first time I did it, it was using uh, bass sax as the bass for the band. Ba- uh, uh, but then later, I, later it sort of stabilized with uh, uh, three three saxophones, trumpet, accordion, cello, upright bass, and drums. And we would do uh, these. The idea was to be like an art rock band, only the style would would be like swing. Circa, like, late 20s, early 30s.
1: That might be my favorite thing out of everything you, you sent me and all that. I, oh, yeah? I listen to that one Bandcamp album a lot. Oh, cool. Um, I did want to talk about the one with Brian DeWan. Oh, it, yeah. Because Brian DeWan's like a central figure in They Might Be Giants oh, yeah. uh, history. Mm-hmm. And that was what, what was the story behind that song? It was called I Want to Go to the Beach.
3: I wither in this home. The devil's left me here with two of his own A kid can't wait forever To go where he might go I want to go to the beach I want to go to I want to find some friends to play with And laugh in the ocean's spray.
0: I had this illustrator friend, Lane Smith, uh, who did a lot of children's books, and he was tapped to do character design for the follow-up to that Tim Burton movie Nightmare Before Christmas was done by this this uh, animation studio that did these, yeah. you know, I forget what... Henry Selleck. Yeah, Henry Selleck, yeah. exactly. Henry <laughs> Selleck's... Uh,
1: I was obsessed with that movie throughout my childhood. Okay, <laughs> right,
0: there you go. I know everything about it. Right. Because of various connections in that circle, Henry Selleck, maybe Jamie Kitman pitched me to Henry Selleck or something like that, and he was sort of interested, and he said, oh, well, you know, write a few songs. and I think oh, he, wow. And I think I did, and I think... Maybe Andy Partridge did, and
1: oh, you're talking about James and the Giant Peach. Yeah, James
0: and the Giant Peach. Yeah. Yeah. Andy's
1: songs for that are amazing.
0: Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. Well, well, mine, mine. So that was that was one of my demo songs for, uh, or that, where that was wow. my demo song for uh, James uh, and the Giant that Peach. That movie could
1: have had oh, such great music. <laughs> yeah, but then they
0: had Randy Newman just crank, I, tr- cranking out what he yeah, always. Have you <laughs> heard
1: Andy's songs?
0: I mean, I haven't. No,
1: they're on YouTube. But he also released nine discs of unreleased songs because oh, wow. Andy's very generous with his all the stuff he's done. Uh-huh. Um, they're, he wrote like five, six songs. They're really good. <laughs> they're
0: really, wow. really good songs. Yeah, I know. I was so bummed when they, I mean, I, I love Randy Newman's best work. It's just wonderful, but like some of the stuff that he does in the movie just seems like either- there, It wasn't it, weird enough for the- Well, it's just like, it. it's just so odd. I don't get what's appealing. I mean, maybe I'm just not <laughs> five years old, but it just it just seems so, it seems so anodyne to I me. I saw
1: it when I was like, 13, and I was in the theater being like, I do not like this. <laughs> yeah, know? I was like,
0: yeah, it was bad, I don't know. Anyway, so, yeah. <laughs> so, I, so I actually went made a trip to San Francisco and met with Henry Selleck and played him my music and wow. and it was, but it was weird, because it wasn't like I, I wasn't really part of that world, I, I didn't really know how to pitch it, and if you've got, I mean, then there's a the thing of like, you know, when, then there's Randy Newman is one of them, it's like, <laughs> you know, then you wonder if demoing it was just kind of a formality. It's like, I also got, uh, mm. I also auditioned to be the house band of Kono and O'Brien's show.
1: Oh, no way. Oh, wow. That was
0: another one where it's like Skyhook, you know, it's like, we you know, we we were gonna have, cause they were going gonna have John Lurie be the band leader. And he wrote the theme song, which they continued to use even after they fired Lurie. But I guess, I guess they had, must've had some idea that the replacement might be like some other guy from the Lower East side. So I sort of fit that description. So, and that was when I was doing the band of Wheeze, which was kind of jazzy and they i guess conan had this idea of it being like the old steve allen show that Mm -hmm, you know where you would have like a jazzy band but then of course they got you know bruce springsteen's drummer to be the house band and it's just (laughs) you know he's excellent drummer and all that and it's they're doing exactly what tv bands are supposed to do you get a bunch of you know really good session musicians to play yeah really slick stuff and that's (laughs) that's what you do
1: yeah, I could see that though. I could see you being in that kind of role as with like from hearing all the the stuff you've done. You know?
0: Well, kind of. I mean, I guess the funny. I mean, I guess the funny thing is like we, you know, I had no idea because because I was really from this whole era of DIY stuff. You know, I mean, I feel like that's kind of where they might be giants is coming from as well. Yes. Where it's like, you know, I mean, they're both excellent musicians in their way, but. But they're not session cats, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like a different thing. And like nobody yeah. was on the, on the Lower East Side. It was, it was a whole, <laughs> this whole other vibe. Well, that's funny. Like when I went to the Conan <laughs> thing, like, I, you know, so when they're, when they're inviting me, you know, I'm talking to like the secretary who's all nice and setting it up and that's all fine. And then when I show up for my interview, like before I play any music for, you know, eventually I'm, I will do this demo with my band at a rented studio for Conan. But first I go, just go for like an interview and the guy who meets me, God, he's the guy who scored the Cronenberg films. What's the guy's name now? I forget. Okay. Well, my revenge, my revenge on this guy is I'm forgetting his name, (laughs) but he's, he's very famous. and I actually like his scores there. They are, his Cronenberg Mm. scores are good, but like I, I get there and he says like, Oh, so you're uh, interviewing for the Conan thing. And it's like, yeah. You know, and he's like, uh, yeah, I heard your stuff. It's okay.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Jesus,
0: it sort of felt like, oh well, uh, why did you bother having me <laughs> over if that's like yeah. what your attitude is? It was kind of like, oh, I, I guess I'm just not used to being in this world that's very, yeah. very uh, blunt about, yeah. you know, like, well, I guess somebody else from our team hired the, you know, the lousy guy from the. <laughs> East Village Art Rock Band, when you know, when I got Springsteen's drummer here, you know,
1: yeah.
0: he's great. Well, he knows everybody. He's going to get Charlie Parker to guest star on the show.
1: Yeah, well, I actually, so Tour. I wanted to talk more about the Apollo Eighteen. Tour. So you play keyboards also, which is very interesting to me.
0: Thanks to the Ator, Eugene Ettore School of Accordion. I, yeah. <laughs> nice. Got some rudimentary so, keyboard skills, Shout good up. enough to play uh, pop piano.
2: the boxes. Kurt Cardinal Hoffman making the sound.
0: I'm John. That's
1: John. Thanks for coming to our show. It's called Don't Let's Start. So in terms of, uh, were these like your parts? Were they Linnell's parts? Was no, I mean, with,
0: with the keyboard parts, basically Linnell would show me what they wanted. Oh, and, really? Uh, or, you know, or I'd get chord changes and listen to what was supposed to be there. And
1: I guess I'll ask, mean, like, how much personal very, uh, expression is there in what you're doing? Not
0: much. I mean, I think I think as a uh, sideman for They Might Be Giants, their their stuff is pretty arranged. Yeah. And, you know, there there were places where I got to do some fun horn improv, improv-, improv- um, you know there were, there are points where i could improvise mm-hmm. on keyboard or on horn but for the most part it's you know it's more like a pop band you're trying to make the song sound like the song and mm-hmm. most of the time it's a particular part that makes it
1: you have like a favorite song to play over the years with them one that was always really fun or you could at least favorite if you want whatever I was always very
0: happy when I could play the chords to Dinner Bell correctly.
1: <laughs> oh wow. That was very sad. That was you on piano during those shows, huh?
0: Yeah, I guess I was being the extra I was being the extra Linnell a lot of the time because he would be singing and playing one of the things he plays and then I would be playing either his keyboard part or the baritone saxophone part. Mm-hmm.
1: i wanted to talk about one specific show uh, that I'm, that I know you were there for, because I have the recording of it. It's the stage collapse. Oh God, show. yes, that was that was a real humdinger. So, <laughs> uh, you know, there, there's some of this in the documentary about them, and but but I, I would love to talk to someone who was who was there. That's also an interesting show for a few reasons because I listened to that show the other day. Yeah. So we should lead off with the stage collapse because that was, it's so here we it's are amazing to listen so, to. So
0: yeah, so <laughs> for those of you who haven't already heard about this, they might be giants had a gig in Milwaukee. And it was on a stage where the, uh, the stage had been extended over an orchestra pit. You know, it must have been like an old movie house or theater or something that had an orchestra pit. And it wasn't, as it would turn out, that strong. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a point in the show where... Famous polka. Where we're playing the famous polka, which is one of their early pieces that's very silly, and people tended to pogo to it. And Flansberg, who was always kind of the MC for the show said, I think, I think the, you know, the audience was, was getting, you know, was really into the show. It was a really good show. People were enthusiastic and it was a typical, they might be giants show. It wasn't like hardcore people. It was like mostly a young crowd. So it's like all these fairly innocent, young, (laughs) young and teenage people. They're already kind of hopping up and down and we're going to play the famous polka and Flansburg, says something to the effect of come on up (laughs) (laughs) meaning like come on and i'm not sure what he meant you know later he said that he just meant come towards the stage the aisles but you know (laughs) what what they really did was they came onto the stage and started to pogo we would
4: like to ask
2: you
1: for this one brief moment to disregard the fire laws feel free to just come on up
4: and help us out with the famous polka
0: So now you've got all these, like, teenagers jumping up and down as hard and as fast as they can um, on this spindly plywood construction over the <laughs> orchestra pit. <laughs> and this lasts for about, oh, I don't know, three seconds. <laughs> 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 after, it's like, ten people hopping up and down on this thing, it just, it just collapses, and then it's sort of like... It's like a disaster movie. It's like... Ah! <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs>
4: Everybody to the stage, dive. Please grab your friends. If you see anybody that's lying down, please pick them on up. Sorry about that, folks. Is <laughs>
0: everybody all right? Oh, <laughs> oh. is thinking. You know, I'm sure was thinking like, oh, I guess I did say, come on down fuck are we going to be sued for this or somebody really hurt what if somebody got killed you know and then as it turned out happily it wasn't a very abrupt fall I guess the stage kind of collapsed in a kind of kind of way so nobody <laughs> nobody just like hit bottom right away so there sure. was like a couple kids that got scrapes and there was a sprained ankle and the sprained ankle kid went to the hospital and Flansburg wanting to make sure that you know, they were taken care of and, you know, felt happy about their They Might Be Giants experience. He went to the hospital and hung out and, you know, made sure things were cool. and, and, And it was. It seems like nobody got badly hurt. It's funny because what I can't remember, and it must be on the tape, yeah. is whether we resumed the set. <laughs> you did, you we did. did. <laughs> that was my that was my recollection. Was that somehow after that we managed to? It was that blows it, my mind. Which is kind of like you know, here we are at Altamont, and then you know <laughs> we've, somebody's just been killed in the crowd, and well, and now I guess we're going to play Satisfaction. Yeah. You know? <laughs> hey, pardon our appearance.
1: Great to be here.
4: Hey, you know, if, um, I know there are a couple of people up
1: front who are worried about their uh, if they got hurt or anything. If you have like a swelled kneecap or something, we've got ice downstairs. So uh, if you did get hurt, don't uh, be shy about getting attention to those wounds. So uh, here comes a song off our brand new first LP
4: and it's called
1: Piece Face. <laughs> oh, Weirdly enough, one really cool thing that happened at that show before the stage collapse is you guys improvised a version of Runaway. Do you have any memory of this? Because you do the keyboard stuff in that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. very impressive for improvisation. Like, you all nail... So, yeah, we, had, well, we had, they had yeah. a feature of that tour where uh, it was called Stump the Band and
0: mm-hmm. Flansburg would ask for the audience to suggest a cover that the band had to play. you
1: ever watch a band and think they, they should really do a different song than the songs in their regular repertoire, perhaps they should do a song, take advice by suggestion from someone in the audience, song type, songs like that, songs you really like, songs that you hear on the radio all the time, over and over again. Or maybe songs like Dancing Queen, Super Freak, Disco Inferno, YMCA. Songs like that. Well, we've done all those songs before, so we're trying to seek out a new song, a song we've never done before, the section of the show that we call Stump the Band.
0: um, And of course all you had to do is say, well, now we're going to play Stump the Band. What song do you want to play? And, of course, you'd get 10,000 suggestions immediately from, and that's just from three people. <laughs> you know, it's like you've, you've got, so, so he, he could do a little curating and just like, you know, so people are shouting the names of 10 songs and he'd pick one that he thought would be fun to play. So that night somebody picked Runaway and we, for, you know, Runaway, fortunately, is not a very complex song. It's not, because okay, mis- I can't, I can't tell, but...
1: Out of all, you know, I've heard a lot of the Stump the Band. There's actually a fan bootleg of a compilation. All the, all the of, of It's about like band. 30 songs. And that's like one of the ones where it actually sounds like you've rehearsed the song. I think it's just that it's one of those, that <laughs> solo in the
0: record, it's just like burned into your brain. Yeah. It's like so squeal, squealingly high. Oh, okay. Yeah. We're hanging out mm-hmm. with bikers and criminals here. <laughs> and they um, might be Giants podcast.
1: talk about um so you played on the tonight show when they were on right yeah that was uh, that, that was, was the guitar statue got behind istanbul because i was watching that and uh-huh. i saw you in the mm-hmm. background there there's a few close-ups of you yeah 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 i just what was that experience like because it's very interesting to me as well, being the, on that show there
0: were there were a couple of things that interested me one one of which was that at the check, we started to play the tennessee waltz and so i actually sort of did a duet on my you know, my saxophone playing is pretty good for somebody from a New York art band, mm-hmm. but I was playing a duet with Branford Marsalis, and there was just sort of this odd thing of like, I'm playing, I'm playing a duet with Branford Marsalis. This is really weird. Tennessee Wells is a very simple melody, so it was very easy to you know improvise it. But it was but it was funny. So that that was one memory. Then the other memory was that Jay Leno had his car parked in the parking lot with the engine running. <laughs> so there was this little convertible with the engine on, and apparently that was because he liked to have it so that when he came out, he I guess he wouldn't have to go through all that trouble <laughs> that would be involved <laughs> in like so turning the off. turning the ignition key on or something. It's like all warmed <laughs> up and uh, interesting. God, somebody told me was it <laughs> Brian Dougherty Somebody said that that they they actually went for a he took a couple oh no it was um a couple of the guys from the crew I think it was adam gabser and and Paul angeli uh, Jay Leno actually took him for a ride in the in the convertible. <laughs> <So laughs> I remember funny. that I remember Jay Leno visiting us in the green room and him having a very tan chest which you could see because his backstage his shirt is like open down to his, his belly button and he was very California wow
1: mm. <laughs> well that is exactly what I wanted he was, to he was, know. He was very he was, he was yeah. very
0: he was very love you babe <laughs> yeah for something um,
2: like that do you have extra nerves that would be different from playing a regular gig I, I asked this to Brian Doherty too like is there more anxiety going on you know something that millions of people will see that, that
0: was really less I think because a we were doing three songs that we had just played like 80,000 times right. at 80,000 Gigs and here you were in a TV studio where the sound is much more, you know, they're much better able to make to carefully set you up, and and you're only going to play two songs, so you can, so yeah, so in a way it was very pretty easy.
2: Do you get stage fright at all, either when you first started out or going into the TMBG days?
0: Generally, there's always a moment at the beginning of a gig where you're sort of going from being a civilian into whoever you are on stage, and there's like anxiety for a while, and then it tends to calm down. That's my experience, that usually like the first minute or the first song is usually where you get over the hump. And then, then I'm fine. And then, and then if you're doing something where like you know the audience is with you, like for my own band I do a lot of talking, get the audience responding. I know they're with me. Then, then it's great. Then I'm cooking. But with they might be giants. It was it was basically that I would get I would get nervous for the first song sometimes because. I guess it's just an animal thing you do. You step out in front of a whole bunch of people, even though it's going to be the same song you played first in the set for the last ten gigs. Yeah. You still don't know. And and I remember one night where a really weird thing happened. Where we were playing Birdhouse, and I'm playing the keyboard part. And there's like one point where the whole band breaks down, and I'm. Well, there's a couple of parts where it comes down to just keyboard yeah. parts, and mm-hmm. it's not. It's not really that hard. It's 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 all just simple chords. But at that point, you know, we had everything memorized. There was no music on stage. And I remember we were coming to the point where it's going to break down and it's just me. And I couldn't remember what the next chord was. I was was sort of like, it was like one of those, it was like a Hitchcock movie where we're in bar 36 and we're coming to bar 37 in like slow motion. It's taking forever. And what is that next chord? And it's like, I don't fucking know. And there's nobody else playing. What, and... I did what one should do, which is I just watched my hand, thinking like maybe my hand will go for it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And goddamn, if it did! It's like obviously (laughs) it wasn't my hand. It was that it was a part of my subconscious mind, which is the part that actually has the songs memorized, and Mm -hmm. it was just the cerebral cortex couldn't remember it and wasn't sure what the guys (laughs) in the back. Whether the guys in the back could handle it, but they totally did, and I just watched my hand and I was like, "Oh, it's an E flat. Oh, okay, there you go." Yeah. <laughs> wow.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have reoccurring nightmares where I'm on stage and I can't remember how to play guitar or my lyrics or anything, which has happened literally at a few shows.
0: I had a singing teacher for a little while who, and she was, she had a whole lesson about. Blanking out on stage and and uh, and her whole thing, I mean she was coming oh my from, God what <laughs> she's actually been an assistant to Richard Rogers. Uh, I met her through a French class, but anyway, she basically her her whole attitude was if you're the singer, whatever you do. Is right, And when you blank out, (laughs) Hmm. you can go la la la, you can make up words, (laughs) but that's what you do. It's better to do that. You will come back to the song at some point, but like that, that, that's fine. And the audience will, even if the audience notices, even if they notice that you're forgetting and improvising, that'll often bring the audience closer because then they're they're sort of charmed by the fact that you're, you're trying, you know, they, they, they can, they can sense your inner drama. And so I, I, I do that you know, because my French stuff with Les chaux you know, mm-hmm. we have to memorize all these songs in French and I'm somewhat fluent. I mean, I know what the, all the lir- lyrics are. It's impossible to memorize a song in French without knowing what they are. So I, I know what they are, but it's like this double challenge of like you're playing, you're singing a song, you're trying to think about what the song is about and trying to sing it with the right affect and then you completely blank on a line. So what do you do? So then it's like... Yeah. La 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 or it's making something <laughs> up or it's singing a bit of verse two where verse right. three should be or mm-hmm. but but you just do it.
1: Yeah. I actually have the recording of your last show with them. Oh, really? It's from six twenty ninety-four. Very special fellow that we've been playing with for the last couple of years. This is his last show tonight, so please give him warm extra special Fenway Park on round of applause and chant along as he does his there's oh, this okay. so great part before. where they all sing happy birthday to you even though it's not your birthday and they bring out a cake. Do you remember this? God, no. <laughs> and the cake says, Kurt, you bum on it. And I have wow. this whole thing so I want to put Holy a clip moly. of it. Holy that's, that's so crazy. I don't really remember that. Yeah, well you'll hear it in the in the episode or I can send oh, wow. you the show if you I wonder,
0: want. Because it was my last
1: gig? Is yeah, it was your lad. They say it's it's Kurt's last show or say goodbye to him and they all sing happy birthday. It's a really sweet. moment. It's well, really sweet. <laughs> our keyboard player of two years, Mr. Kurt Carlahoff, And it's not his birthday, but we can't think of any other song to do. So please, his name is Kurt. Here comes his cake. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday
3: Birthday, Kurt. I'd like to thank
4: you all for this past two years. And I'd like to say that the cake they gave
1: me said, hurt you bum. <laughs> Do you remember why did you leave the tour? What what was going on? I think it was an end of a tour. And at that
0: point, I had done two years of touring with them. and uh, I, And I loved it. But the problem with touring is that you know it's a job i mean they were spending 6 months of the year on the road for the mm-hmm. during those couple of years so it was it was i mean it was great it wasn't a full time job i guess it was a half time job but it was like you couldn't you couldn't come home you know after yeah. work so like your entire private life has to go on hold you know and at the time i was in a relationship with somebody and it was just like i couldn't be around mm-hmm. and it, also like and, I, and i'm a musician and i couldn't do my stuff, you know, because I was, I mean, I could practice, I practiced a lot. Mm -hmm. I did continue doing duets with Linnell on the road all the time. That was really fun. But, you know, it was kind of like whenever I was on the road, life was, life was on hold. And I couldn't really do that forever because I'm not, I'm not that kind of musician, I guess. I'm more of an artist. I'm more, you know, I need to. Yeah. And well, also the thing about being in a pop band if you're in a pop backing band, is you know it can be really fun to be part of this thing that's driving a crowd crazy, and I you know and I, I like they might be giants material. It's really fun, but a pop band, you know, you're playing conventionalized arrangements. You have to play that song. I mean, unless you're in a really unusual band, like maybe if you're playing in Bob Dylan's band, you play the song differently every single night. But like if you're in They Might Be Giants, it's you know, you're trying to reproduce the song. So like you're doing something that's very repetitious. And so it's not, cre- it's not your music. It's not creative and you don't get to live your life. So, yeah, so it was like a really, really wonderful thing. And I, you know, went to Japan with them and I got to see all kinds of places in the United States with them and 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 they're great guys. So it was like it wasn't like an abominable rock tour with like yeah. horrible people and people <laughs> ODing on drugs and all this yeah. other stuff. It was like being around smart people to that you could do things with and talk to. And you know, I read Dostoevsky last night. Oh really? Blah blah blah. You know, that's <laughs> yeah. just like it wasn't like your average.
1: Brian talked about how John Lennell's always talking about. Books he was reading and science books and stuff.
0: <laughs> it's yeah, I mean that's the thing, yeah. and that was which was just great. You know, I mean that was that made it more like, I mean that was the fun of it was that it was like going to all these places with people that you know back in Williamsburg were were my friends. So it was that was a nice aspect of it. But then the professional aspect of it is you know tour buses and you know sound checks and gigs and restaurants and.
1: Um, I wanted to ask, you're credited for. Artwork for the Halloween teen. You're one of a few people credited. Do you remember what your con- contribution yeah, just, was? Yeah, I just, did. I
0: just, I was working at Details magazine at the time, and oh, that piece. Yeah, I remember doing that. My role was just, I was, I was just the paste-up artist. It was, it was pre, it was pre desktop computing. So you were still generating galleys of type and images and creating these things called paste-ups that you sent to the printers, who would like shoot all the type, put it in the places where you said it should go, and you know. So I was. Uh yeah so I did freelance graphics at magazines back then and I I did that as a job for Hornblow
1: like the anything specific or just like the whole layout of it I did the
0: whole thing I think I think this one actually um has a piece by um yeah this is this is a piece by Fred Toma- by the artist oh, no Fred way. Tomaselli, who lives here
1: <laughs> oh, That's so awesome. crazy <laughs> uh, oh, That's so funny Wow
0: Yeah and you should and if you don't know Fred's work you should see it it's really amazing amazing stuff what was
2: the yeah. talk like from going to touring to doing some recording?
0: Well, Why Does the Sunshine was really easy because I think that what's on what's on here again? You do
1: you're on Jessica Spy and Whirlpool, right? So I mean, basically, and it's a, a different version of Spy.
2: Okay, yeah. So and they're pretty horn heavy.
1: Yeah, very horn heavy. Right. Well,
0: I think so, yeah. Some <laughs> In of my these. Opinion. Well, basically, <laughs> some of these came from so so John Henry as yes, as as die hard they might be giants fans might know was an album that was recorded twice
1: yeah <laughs> and
0: and probably could have been recorded once <laughs> <But> <laughs> basically they had done all this stuff where they had always done all their own backup and we were always performing with a tape. And then when they started to get bigger, it, it seemed like they really could use a band to have more presence on stage, to have like yeah. shows that were more exciting for yeah. large audiences. And so that's when they put the live band together and that's when, and me now, free of the ordinaries, could play keyboards and horn. It seemed like I could fit into their constellation of that sort of thing, so that's what they did. So now they're at the point where now they've got a band and it's a funny moment because, you know, they sort of came up in, like, you know, mid-80s when there's a lot of new wave. There's a whole sort of irony about pop music that they're sort of within the spectrum of. But by the early 90s, you know, grunge is getting bigger and bigger. I was just going to say, There's yeah. this, whole, this, this whole grunge thing, this whole rock thing, and... There was some idea that, you know, well, maybe even though it's not really what they do exactly, that somehow they should be more like a band. And it's weird because all the demos for the... John Henry were stuff that sounded like their early albums you know because it's all stuff yeah, that they did by themselves really and that, interested in those and, recordings and those things, and those things sound <laughs> are, you know they're great you know and, and they probably those were on dial a song okay so there you go so they so those, those things and they're great <laughs> they're great and you know and they could have they could have easily spruced those up in the studio and made those into an album that mm-hmm. would have sounded of a piece with a lot of their other stuff but what they wanted to do was to try to do you know do it with musicians and i think it wound up being progress towards what they really got good at because i think that you know i think basically john henry was the first try and in my opinion it's got some fantastic songs on it that i really love but like i feel like it didn't really capture what's great about them as a as a band somehow like there's something about it being a I don't know. I feel. I feel like factory showroom. They they like totally got it. You know? Oh, interesting. Like, wow. like, <laughs> that was that was my my sense.
2: Is
1: that? That's a, yeah.
2: Brian Doherty almost had the opposite opinion. Yeah. When we were talking with him, he had the. He was like, oh, there was an energy in those John Henry sessions. He thought it was closeness. very unified,
1: very like we're a bit we're a, they've, if he felt it was very um yeah like we're all together in this, but he felt factory showroom cabins, was more fractured and don't really know what I'm doing
0: and well I think I mean I don't know maybe it's just me because it's sort of yeah, like, yeah. I, I, feel, I feel like somehow the, the thing about Factory Showroom is that it's it's sort of I feel like more arrangement power was somehow returned to hmm. John and John or I don't know mm. I feel like somehow I feel much more like their sense of being able to totally change the color of a song from one song to the next yeah, becomes apparent again true. and I think that that was what was really powerful in their earlier stuff and I feel like that's what got mitigated in John Henry is like the more. I mean, while there's, there's, you know, there's still a diversity of stuff on John Henry, uh, but th- there's a little bit more monotony of sound about it. That's see,
1: that's why it's actually my favorite. They might be giants. Album. Oh well, that's well, that's great. <laughs> because yeah, it's it, it, it's a it's got a vibe where you can. Um, there's an emotional resonance for for some reason. I don't. I can't explain it completely, but there's a certain feeling to it. Well, I mean, there's really I, good songs. I mean, yeah. there's definitely,
0: you know, I think, I think that there's some of, you know, Linnell's more kind of emotional songs on it that are, that are you know, and things that, are, you know, are about like, you know, suggest a personal life, you know, in a way that was, you yeah. know, his more ironic earlier stuff never would get close to. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I could, I could see that too. It does seem oddly slightly more vulnerable
1: yeah. There's it's with the production. So the the mon- monotonous feel of it to me, it, it sounds like a long dark night, right? Oh, okay, cool. Like a long night driving I like on, the, that. on the road. Uh-huh. Whereas the other albums are so, uh, schizophrenic, right? Right. Right. That it's right. It's more, right. it's more, um, it's maybe more entertaining on a visceral level. Right, right, but right. But for some reason, John Henry to me is like, I'm going to put this album on when I'm like having a bad night and I'm just going like to listen to this on the bus ride home kind of feel Right, like right, I used right. to put it on, um, on the subway home or whatever when I'd be in a bad mood and it would really be a soothing feeling. Whereas if I put on Flood or another one, I feel like it would clash. It wouldn't, you know, I'd be like, this is competing for my
0: attention. Well, you asked about why does the sunshine, the thing about it is like, so so what happened, to make a long story short, Uh the first time we recorded we were supposed to record full band demos of all the songs. Mm-hmm. And what that involved was basically recording the whole album. And we got we did it with Pat Dillett, you know, who wound mm-hmm. up recording all of their albums yeah. ever after. And we did it at a small studio out here in Williamsburg. So I think the smallness of the studio made it seem maybe a little bit more casual. But, you know, in fact the performances were of all this stuff that we had toured, you know, and, and worked on extensive, no, maybe we hadn't toured it at that point, but we had, we had done, like, months of rehearsal, so we were, like, we, we totally knew all the stuff, Yeah, and we were fine-tuning the studio, so the, we recorded the whole album, plus some extra songs that didn't get on John Henry, and then the idea was, like, okay, we have this demo, and now we're going to do, uh, we're going to find a producer who will now make it, you know, a more fleshed-out, you know, full pop album, and that's when they brought in uh, what's his name, Paul, Paul Fox, Fox. Yeah. yeah, who, you know, I, feel- I
1: wanted to ask, well, well yeah, what was his <laughs> yeah, production I, Well, style I mean, I like? felt,
0: I, I mean, I just, I had a negative impression of it. I, I thought that I didn't feel that he was really engaging with their sensibility particularly sure. at all. I felt like he, for him, it was a gig to be dispatched, and he didn't really, but you know. Plus, it was it was awkward for me because I mean I think his his short list of ideas were things like, well, I did a fish album and I got the J B Horns on a track, and that was great because you know everybody likes the J B Horns, and of course they might be giants had a horn section that had been working together, and they were wanting to record with. With us, you know, because yeah. we we're doing it. So we would do things like, uh, you know, I think we recorded dirt bike, which has all these horns on it, and then like, you know, we'd do it, and Paul Fox would be like, eh, <laughs> "I wanted to get the JBs," you know. And he just oh man! Sort of, and, and, and you know, director would think like, "Well, I don't," you know. I mean, of course, it would have been really something with the JBs, but it's not what you want to hear. As, as a player it's not what you want to sure. hear when you're <laughs> stepping out of the out of the booth you know it's like well they but it, but it just felt to me like he didn't understand what the project was and that and that to me it i, I felt he brought a, a pallor to the to the sessions and and to the the project that i it's really I interesting
1: know, like. i almost feel like that might be why i like I, that weird um Anti collaboration might be, might be the just weird the secret, fi- might, ingredient. might be just the
0: ticket. Yeah, yeah well, sometimes well, that uh, happens.
1: There's weird, there's like, like XTC with Skylarking, yeah. you know, that album, like they nonstop fighting with Todd Rundgren, who produced oh, yeah. it, but it's that, it's like everyone's favorite album. Oh, that's ones. funny. Well, um, well, I guess
0: I guess the other thing I would yeah. say is that there were... Well, I think they've released it now, right? Didn't they release the demos? The, the demos? Yeah, they yeah. Do, yeah. So what, see, do you, what do you make of them?
1: Well, I was... I said this in another episode. I was yeah, disappointed because when they said we're putting out the John Henry demos, I thought they meant those dial songs where it's the drum oh, machine. Right, 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 right. And I was so excited because some of those are completely different songs yeah. even. Right. So I was excited, and then it turned out to be something that sounded almost identical
0: right, right, to John right. Henry.
1: It's certainly fascinating, and we're probably going to do an episode about it. right, um, right, right. The
2: demos seem pretty similar... To yeah. my ear, I mean, maybe yeah, I mean, a I,
0: guess, more I guess maybe maybe it's just you yeah, know what I Maybe it's, maybe maybe it's not my uh, maybe it's not Paul Fox's problem. Maybe it was just the fact that we basically had recorded the whole album
4: yeah pretty and carefully
0: and then had to do it again. <laughs> yeah. but with this guy who was like doing all the you know who had all this you know attitude about how he was running the show and was you know thought a lot of himself and i just thought and it just seemed like you know good lord you know we've already done these songs and it's like yeah. <laughs> he's not adding anything but anyway i think that's where these these come from those sessions, though. Yeah,
1: I particularly love Whirlpool. I don't know if there's anything about that, but that's all horns. And it's it's a cover. It's a meat puppet. Yeah, song. it's a
0: meat puppets cover. The, we were on their this version
1: meat... is it, it's very sweet. It's really interesting. It's like weirdly emotional.
0: Yeah, it's great. I mean, because I never thought I liked the meat puppets, but then yeah. I like that song and then we <laughs> mm-hmm. wound up doing a gig with them in Phoenix one time and I got a load of meat puppets. Every yeah.
2: song I ever hear that I like seems to be a meat puppets cover. <laughs> No. <laughs> yeah, it's like that's, all the Nirvana ones too. And
0: that's that's <laughs> that's my that's what my next song is going to be called. <laughs> yeah. Every song I like um, turns out to be a meat puppets cover. Have it.
2: There was a swirling
0: mass of water that lived in a quiet pond. It asked permission from a t-
1: So I also wanted to ask about we can go to just factory showroom because you arranged S E X X Y the horns oh, yeah. and strings and yeah. that's something I've always loved about that song is the string especially the yeah. string arrangement
0: really that was like out. my that was that was kind of the thing that was like uh, sad, so satisfying for me because the one frustrating thing about being in their touring band and being the side band was like here I am I'm an arranger you know like right. that's my thing I mm. love doing arrangements and here's this band that could really use an arrangement I'd, but you know but that's exactly what their thing is you know mm-hmm. like, so like this, like you know they're they're precisely so it's like there there wasn't room for me to do my thing so when flansberg asked me to do an arrangement I was like wow this is this is what I always wanted to do I wanted to so be he able approached to I you was, like- I was I, yeah he asked if I would do
1: it and and I and I was uh, What was the direction he gave you for that because it's unlike anything on any of their albums.
0: Yeah, he. Did. I think he just he just gave me the song. He, he just gave mm. me the song, and I, I think you can sort of see it in some of the ordinary stuff like Bacchanal. But I, uh, I was kind of, or courage that uh, I, I was kind of into disco strings. like I really I really enjoyed disco strings and I thought like oh it would be really fun to totally do a Barry White disco string arrangement on on this one and so that's that's what I did even though it's not a disco song at all but I thought it would be really funny
1: there she is standing on
4: the bed cookie in It's extra,
1: baby, why? It's extra, there's there's yeah. this whole end section, though, that's, it's not quite disco-y, it's more oh, yeah, classical Right, classical right, sounding, right, right, you know? exactly, so, yeah. yeah I, so I was, that was
0: just that was just one of those things where as I was doing it, it was just sort of like, oh, well, I'd like, I think they have a couple like this, but I like the phenomenon of the outro. Yeah. yeah. You know, when it's like the end of, you know, all you need is love, the song kind of starts to dissolve, or the end of... <laughs> I am the walrus, and it goes out and you know these, to have something to have something that sort of dissolves the song. So that was that was my outro. Idea yeah, and I was happy that they kept it.
1: I always found it funny that you know it's like this classy thing on that song, especially compared to what their stuff usually sounds like, which is like pop rock, you know. But it's like S E X. It's like the their least classy lyric almost. <laughs> But it's like got the most classy arrangement, and I thought that was always funny.
0: <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I just want—I I was just kind of into the fun eclecticism of it, and just thought like, oh, well, that's—you know—I was—I was happy to be able to play in their sandbox for a minute.
4: You got
1: Yeah, it's 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 a big standout on that album, you know. Almost it almost like is the first track does that and then none of the other songs really do that. Like there's no lush classical sounding string arrangements on the other songs, so it's almost like, oh, I thought we were gonna get this
0: Right. Throughout right. The album. There, right. It's, it's,
1: uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. um, they
0: might be giants in the love of the love of life orchestra.
1: Yeah. Uh, so let's see. So i mean, we're now in the TMBG adjacent section, I think. Mm-hmm. So one thing I wanted to talk to you about was when you, you and John Linnell played on Frank Black's debut album, right? Yeah. Um, because me and Dave are both big Frank Black fans. Uh, I'm especially a fan of that album. Uh huh. What was that experience like? And also get into there's this concert you played together that i have a, a recording of oh and wow frank frank says it's kurt hoffman you know oh,
0: right right I, I i barely remember that <laughs> there, was, there were just so many gigs right. it was
1: 62493 Wow. Electric Studios. This is your life. That's
0: why like, <laughs> at one point I was like, "Wait a minute!" I played Madison Square Garden once with They Might Be Giants. <laughs> like I, it was just came. It occurred to me, like you know, you played at Madison Square Garden once, and I was like, "Wait, did you?" And you'd think like, how could something like that be like a trivial memory? And yeah. it's like it's like if you're on the road often enough, looking into that black sea of. Unseen, yeah, <laughs> people. But uh, but it's sort of like oh yeah, because yeah. like I was I was watching uh, that Stones movie Cocksucker Blues. Have you ever seen that? Never seen it. Oh, it's but... it's you got to check it out. It's really great in its way. But the by Robert Frank. But there's there's a whole scene where they're all backstage at Madison Square Garden, and I was looking at it, going like, wait a minute, I've been there, you know? Because of course it's a it's a sports locker room. You know, oh. it's, it's like it's like set up for all the sports yeah. sports teams that are and in, in the uh, cocksucker blues there's a scene of Mick Jagger drunkenly or coke-addledly holding forth to the camera but in the meanwhile you see <laughs> Keith on a bench one one of these sports benches by the locker just sort of slumping gradually you just watch him fall all the way over
1: <laughs> wow so okay so playing on Frank's yeah so I guess I'm
0: not quite sure how it all worked but, but, uh, but Charles Thompson uh, and his girlfriend at the time followed along the they might be giants tour at some point for some dates in texas i think i'm not quite sure why they were in the area where i think he was just like following along to hang out and and uh have fun not that we were particularly a party band but (laughs) um,
1: read some books together
0: but he he too is one of those people who is articulate and reasonable and generally a very nice guy um even though he can scream very well. <laughs> yeah. When he, when he chooses to. <laughs>
1: well, his different. Um, something that it, it interests me about him is his different personalities. Right. Because you can even listen to live bootlegs and in one of them, he's being silly and jokey on stage and he's talking to the audience and it's hilarious. And then in others, he's not saying a word and it's all serious. And I'm just yeah. like, which is the real, like <laughs> over the years, it's it's very interesting to yeah. me. And, and that debut album is, yeah. it's very much like Pixies meets They Might Be Giants. Like that's yeah. what that album sounds like to me. That's what I think too. That's and, an interesting way to look at it. And then later albums sound nothing like that. No, exactly. Know? Yeah. And I'm a fan of all his.
0: Yeah. No, I I like that first album, especially. uh, Though I I have to admit, part of it's me going like, "Hey, that's me on Fu Manchu here." (laughs) Well, it came about because, they, were, you know, he was he was friends, I think, closer friends with Flansburg, but friends with both of the Johns. So he was recording his album with Drew in Los Angeles, and They Might Be Giants were going to be playing some gigs in California. It was going, We were going to start a leg of a tour. So John and I uh, flew out there before the rest of the band, I think, was what had happened, uh, okay. and, and did the sessions.
1: What's it like being in the studio with Frank Black? Is he, like, really or driving things is he letting you do what you want to do like
0: well i mean again this was there were, they were like pop songs with particular parts and it was just mm-hmm. you know this is this you know i think he some somehow he conveyed the melodies to us i forget whether did they had they sent us a demo of it i forget but, I mean, they were pretty simple parts. Either they hummed them to us or they gave, they did something that <laughs> conveyed what our parts were and we played it. And mostly I remembered we were stacking horns to get a big sound and I was thinking, yeah. like, well, I could get... The, and they were asking for this really high note that was beyond our ability to play on saxophone. I said, well, I got my clarinet and uh, Linnell and I were both, uh, you know, sort of chortled that uh, Drew said, uh, oh, that would be too Dixieland. <laughs> <laughs>
1: did you ever get the high note somehow or is it... no we did without it well
0: i guess, I, guess it, I mean the truth of it is it wouldn't it wouldn't have been dixieland but it, it really is true that a clarinet has a very different connotation than a saxophone oh if for you're, sure if you're trying to get a rock sound clarinet is often not what you're
1: reaching for so you did some soundtrack So i did work. a bunch of soundtrack
0: yeah. work for various things i don't know how i mean it, it all again seemed to just pop up organically i did uh i did a few things I did a few things for television so it Scoring to picture when you yeah do that? scoring to picture.
1: Well, how did you find that process? It's kind of. Have you done a feature? Almost, but no. I, I've mostly done shorts. Because the thing about it that's that's insane is
0: that you can work on the music while they're editing it. Yeah. But none of the timings. Are, are, and, you know, everything I has know. to be timed. Yeah. Even yeah, if you're yeah. just going to be like a little cloud of noise underneath the sound of, of a motorcycle, gunfire, and some footsteps, it still has to be very precise. So you're working on rough versions of these things, and then there's this moment when they finish the edit and they give you the final version with all the correct times, and that day is usually like three days before they go into sound mix. So you, have to, you basically have to do the entire score... Start to finish, do the sessions. you have to do all you know you have to record all the sessions to picture within like some really insanely limited period of time. so it's it's just this it's this insane rush or that was my experience,
1: yeah, that's I've read interviews with composers, and they all say like <laughs> they give you like maybe three weeks for like a you know something like that, well,
0: yeah, well, I guess you well you get you get a short amount of time to develop it, but then even less to to like actually produce the the yeah. final but but then. Yeah, I remember doing a television show, and and like I got it, and it was like so, it was so crazy. I Do mean, I got I got show? like the, it was, it was it was special for HBO called All Star Moms, and it had various. I find that. It had like Shaquille O'Neal making fried chicken with his mother. It had <laughs> it, it had. Various, oh, okay, I get it. Various celebrities with their mothers. It was a Mother's Day thing, sure. uh, and um, I did the whole thing, and a lot of it came out great, uh, but there was one. One of the cues was like, I don't know, it was like 15 seconds over. Mm. And I get this... I get this raging call from the film <laughs> editor, who herself has probably been up all night. And sure. It's yeah. like, but like, you know, why are you It's like, well, we I think we can use a little digital compression and just like make it, you know, the right length. And she's like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, but and of course that's what we do, and it's fine. But you know, was, mm-hmm. did you
1: enjoy a, a scoring to picture though?
0: I mean, the great thing about scoring is that you get a budget to hire great, or at least when I, I was always doing writing scoring for real musicians to play. So. It was great to be given a budget to write all this m- music for real musicians and be able to hire real musicians. And you know, I think like that ending of S E X S Y was partly because I'd done a lot of film scoring. So like being, a, you know, that's, ah. that was just kind of the way I was thinking at that point.
1: Mm-hmm. We are almost done. Let's. I just want to get into the a few more things. Uh, yeah. The Studio Ten performances you sent me. uh oh, yeah. So I want to talk about the one with John Linnell because. Going by the view count, TMEG fans have not discovered this video.
0: So me and John have been doing duets, as I've said, since the late 80s, starting with our uh, bass sax and bass clarinet duets, moving through clarinet duets. And then as time went on, And this sort of dovetailed into the live band thing, doing trios and quartets with other players, like Frank Lendon, who was on tour with They Might Mm. Be Giants, was somebody that would come and do quartets with us sometimes. And then in recent years, uh, me and John worked a lot with Dean Olsher, who is known to New Yorkers probably most through his uh, WNYC show called The Next Big Thing that he did for a while. He uh, plays bass clarinet, and we would do... Trios with the uh, dean on bass clarinet, and then me and John on various clarinets. Because I, 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 these days I'm mostly playing just uh, clarinet and alto clarinet, and John has a, a contralto clarinet, which is uh, the one that's. Is that the giant one? It's pretty damn big. <laughs> yeah. Well, on tour he's got on tour he's got what they call the paperclip version, yeah. which is made mm-hmm. out of metal, and that one's kind of more for like you know, military band or something. It's the industrial strength, not particularly beautiful sounding, quacks like a duck, but does it. You know, very good for a rock show. But he also has like a beautiful rosewood one that's like a classical one. And and so he would, we did a lot of things. And uh, I wrote a few, all of us wrote, have written pieces for this trio. Me and Dean, John's written some canonical pieces and uh, I wrote some jazzy pieces. The real thing we... Fun-loving wild people like to do is uh, do a lot of baroque music, a lot of Bach, (laughs) a lot Mm -hmm. of classical music, and uh, and that stuff's just really fun. I mean, especially the baroque stuff; it's just really fun to play because everybody, because it's contrapuntal, everybody gets a good part, and also the way that stuff fits together is so clever and wonderful. Mm -hmm. If you're playing, you know, if you're devoted to just one line in a Bach piece, you you go on this amazing journey, you know, because you, you're fitting in with everybody in all these crazy ways. And uh, But anyway, so on the Studio 10 thing, you can hear uh, some of the Bartok uh, trios with uh, John on the Rosewood clarinet and me on clarinet and Dean on accordion.
1: on both of you that you wrote original pieces for that too. Are those anywhere to be found, either by you or John?
0: They are to be found in the center of the earth in a place that I can only (laughs) I can only tell you how to get there by a series of (laughs) cryptic messages, and you will find grave (laughs) grave challenges that might cost you your life, your health, (laughs) your sanity. Okay, I've done a
1: lot for this podcast. What else am I doing? (laughs) Um, I tracked down the guy who owns Doc Sugar Bowl. What's uh, that? The, it's a line in, um, you know the song, The Biggest One, they might be trying. Oh, yeah. He mentions that, he, in the lyrics, he says that Doc's Sugar Bowl.
0: Oh, I think I know the story about, from behind, I'm I'm the Biggest One, though. Do you know that one? No,
1: no, I don't. Because I think that, I think, I, I'm not.
0: I, <laughs> Go Flansburg on. can kill me if I'm wrong, or maybe he'll just kill me anyway. He, he hasn't killed me yet. I think that he told me that that was, because he went to Pratt, and he moved in with like all his gear, and he had been told that you had to be kind of careful in that neighborhood because there's a lot of burglary. Sure. And I forget what he didn't fail to do, but I think he got burgled like the next day, and they took eighty percent of everything he had, and then wow. and then he was and then they came back the next day and took the other twenty percent. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And that I I think that was when he and that's where. I'm, he felt, and I think that made him feel like he was the
1: biggest fool. Mm. That he was the biggest ah, fool. That might be. Uh, That's interesting. Very illuminating. Yeah, I could see that. Um, he regret. Should, he regretted. Should change courses. that stupid lock. Oh, that's, that's why he the says Should have changed the lock Oh, is that it? There you go
0: and the, oh, but right. Then he, oh, right Oh, right Because they came back the next day yeah. Exactly But then exactly. He, he
1: blends that into I will survive right. Which the lyrics to I will right, survive Because it really says funny. No, no, not I I will survive And in I will survive She says I should have changed my lock There no it is I no one to blame right. But my fat self Yeah that's very interesting, yeah, yeah. That's, that's great. that's a yeah there we like go knew the I knew, I, knew I would know
0: some tiny little info <laughs> cue cool that would be of interest, yeah, in yeah a podcast.
1: <laughs> well, a lot of what we we the reason the show is so amazing that's the word you're (laughs) looking for i was gonna say like people are like how do you have so many hours on just this one band like when i tell (laughs) people about what i like i'll make conversation be like oh i have a podcast about a band they're just like how do you have like more than one episode talking about a band i'm like because their lyrics have you can talk about one line for 45 minutes right you know that's what we do in the show (laughs) um
2: and also because we're just such great friends
1: yeah that's right um
2: i met me and kurt (laughs)
1: So (laughs) I also wanted to highlight, you did this song in the Studio 10 performances. I think one of the best things is this song about Niagara Falls, which is like, there's not a lot of... your material that has you singing vocals, especially in English. Yeah, not in <laughs> so, English. Yeah, you yeah. oh, do a lot but yeah. Yeah, so it's like a kind of an accessible moment for, yeah. for our listeners to yeah. hear and like, so that's an interesting, you, you could talk about the Niagara Falls song because that was a standout. I really like that. Oh,
0: thank you. Yeah, no, I I wrote that because Meg Reichart for many years yeah. has a home studio and for many years did a uh, re- Christmas recording party. And oh, the way wow. it works is that everybody writes this, all these musician friends write a song and you show up and whoever's turned this to record the song can tap anyone in at the party to play in their with their song and you get like 15 minutes to a half hour studio time to record your song so you basically have this whole gang of Brooklyn musicians and you you record it so uh, and it was great and they got great people Rick Moody did some great songs Mark Amp of Drink Me sort of a oh okay i did did a, did a song. Brian DeWan did a bunch of songs. Oh,
4: wow. Look to the future.
3: The future. What will the future bring? The future brings Christmas. The ghost of Christmas future.
0: A ghost to guide you. But the, so, uh, going over New Year's Falls was a uh, was was one of my uh, holiday holiday songs one year. When I was researching it, I mean the thing—the thing about the people going over in, uh, Niagara Falls in a barrel is that most of them get really fucked up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's a terrible yeah. idea. Yeah, and like, and and you think like, who would even do it? It was mostly because the people that could do it and survived would then set up a little stand where like you could get their autograph or sell yeah. you some, some <laughs> souvenir. But it's like it's it's so low stakes and and it's such it's such a bad idea.
2: <laughs> the risk reward is not a. Yeah, it's just like <laughs> yeah. oh
0: my god.
3: The frozen pines stand by the river The rapids rumble silently And though the moon is just a sliver We see A man in gentleman's apparel Prepares
2: to ride the raging creek the I was going to ask quick, because um, yeah. you do a lot of, you know, with, you start out with The Ordinaires, which was uh, no vocals, right. Band of Weeds, also no vocals. Right. Do you prefer having no singer in your songs? Because you do have vocals that are in French. Do you have a preference for just instrumental music or vocal music? Or what was your the appeal there?
0: Uh, well, I think I think in the beginning I just couldn't sing and I didn't sing. <laughs> I mean, I did I did, I did a little bit, but I but I but I was very much into instrumental music and thought it was an interesting area to explore that was underexploited. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's mm-hmm. that there's plenty of vocal bands, but uh, and you know a lot of music that I liked was instrumental. So mm-hmm. oh, okay. I think it also re- reflected that. But I I also like a lot of vocal music and I'm delighted that. After years of trying, I can kind of sing now, so I can actually yeah. express myself, and uh, it's it's fun.
1: That's a good segue to talking about your the, your current band, <laughs> which I, I feel like I will, I'll pronounce it wrong. Can I try to pronounce <laughs> it? I'm terrible would at you, that sort you, of
0: wouldn't thing.
1: Wouldn't you please? <laughs> oh, yeah, do
2: do it. Lechel, lapin. <laughs> would you
0: would you would you like to try?
1: <laughs> that's a that's a big no, <laughs> I think. Lechel lapin. No terrible this
0: sort Les chaux
1: Lapins. okay right. Les chaux Lapins. so tell us about you know we're sort of in the end Les section Les chaux
0: Lapins, right the, we're, well, well so uh, oh here
1: wanted you guys to have a copy of oh my god uh, oh awesome awesome yeah I listened to this many times oh maybe you've it's, already listened to it but this this no, gives, no, you, this gives
0: the you the lyrics booklet with the uh, translated I love
1: the album art oh it has translated lyrics oh that's yeah. fantastic by the way yeah the album art's great oh thank too. you yeah I did the album art so that's oh you did that
0: I did that awesome right so Les chaux Lapins uh is in essence a collaboration between me and Meg Reichart, who is the uh, perhaps the main vocalist for le Cholepin as well as the guitarist. and I am the uh, part-time vocalist and uh, verbose MC at uh, le Cholepin gigs and I play banjo ukulele and clarinet and do the arrangements. So there's a lot I feel like you can kind of get a little bit of a, a sense of my film scoring thing for listening to the string arrangements in the Les Cholepin.
3: Foire, tout est aux abois, t'es et belle en soi,
0: ménage de
3: chevaux de bois, et j'entends l'histoire d'un type un peu fou, qui dans la nuit
1: noire, très doux. What inspired doing a band like, like this? Well, it it was really like,
0: I, I think it's part of making art out of life. I had a uh, boyfriend for a few years who was French, uh, and he said, I think you should learn French, and I knew that wasn't going to help our relationship particularly, but <laughs> uh, I thought, well, okay. And, and as it happened, I wound up going to his family's for Christmas a couple years, and wound up going to French a bunch, and he was always having French people over to his house, so there was there was a good reason to start learning French. Uh, and I went to the Alliance Francaise, and um, somewhere during that process, um, Meg, who I knew through Brian Dewan, like, me and Brian and Meg were all going to go off to see a... a, a milton babbitt concert at uh uh at columbia once and before we went we left we stopped by my house meg noted like oh you've got this uh charles trene 78 on on the uh turntable because i was starting to collect 78s around then and he's this really great do you know charles Yeah, no. probably not okay <laughs> so he's like one of the first guys in france to write his own you know to be of like the swing era who writes his own stuff, but he's like somebody who went to art school, he hung out with... uh Cocteau and the Surrealists. And so a lot of his songs are really weird. So they sound very, like, charming and French and light. And then you hear the song and it's like, oh, it's about somebody who commits suicide in verse 2 and continues in his spirit continues singing in verse 3. Or yeah. Oh, oh, it's this is about two wax mannequins who are in an eternal dance. Oh, this is about somebody who's pissing in the courtyard and then when the husband shoots him, he comes back to haunt the wife. I mean, it's just like all this. <laughs> so Meg noted that there was a Charles Trenet, uh, record there and i was learning french and it turned out that meg had been in a band that was doing a lot of 20s 30s blues stuff called the roulette sisters uh had an interest in that period and had also she had also and she also knew french so we started to do some so she invited me over to try to work on some songs together and uh over a period of time it went from uh casual dalliance to doing a band to uh to being a whole thing
1: yeah it's beautifully produced too like the album just sounds fantastic oh thank you yeah pat dillett right yeah pat dillett
0: Dillett has has uh engineered all our all our stuff so you learned
2: french much later on then you didn't start out knowing
0: yeah no i started learning french in 2002
2: wow and you mentioned you were learning hungarian also do you yeah i'm learning (laughs) hungarian these days Wow. Uh, do you have a uh, proficiency for language? Or is it?: No, I speak them
0: terribly.: <laughs> <laughs> Well, not that. It's just that um, <laughs> I mean, I don't have a professional or personal use for them exactly, so I think for me, it's, it's like I, I do learn them. I can speak basic, fluent French. I mean, it sounds good. Uh, no. <laughs> Merci. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that's the thing. It's like, I, and I actually learned to sing in French, and then there was the thing of like it actually took me some time to real to learn how to sing in English because mm-hmm. it is kind of a whole different thing.
1: Uh, I was actually also wanted to talk about the. S- the the pandemic stuff you did on YouTube the the song right yeah because that that was like a great little music video it was really fun oh it, thank your you mopping or whatever yeah 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 yeah, yeah like, like I don't know are, are you gonna do more stuff like that or like what yeah, What I mean does the future hold for yeah for the <laughs> well we
0: well you know we've been slowly real like at a glacial speed we have been doing our third album with Pat Dillett. Uh. and that that's now. In the can and mastered, and now we we're sort of slowly getting to the point of thinking like, okay, well, what does it mean to release a record? Yes. At this moment in history, <laughs> um, I'm not sure, mm-hmm. but uh, we're 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 getting ready, and it's 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 got some great stuff on it. I'm very proud of I'm proud of this uh, this album.
1: Oh, one thing I skipped: honorable discharge. You mentioned you were really uh, happy with that.
0: We had a performance space out here in uh, Williamsburg called Four Walls, where it had regular events uh, of all sorts. It had a slide and film club. It had people doing performances. It had art shows, had discussion groups. And I did a collaboration with sculptor and organizer Mike Ballou. And uh, it was basically me reading uh, surrealist homoerotic porn stories interspersed by these songs for classical voice in a small ensemble that's sort of Kurt weill or something. So it, and, then, and, it, and the performance aspect of it, between me reading these short stories, was m- my friend Mike, who did the bunny head. He, he, his, he devised a big bear head for himself and got into a bear costume and folded and unfolded this elaborate set so that different images would appear for different stories. Mm-hmm. And, uh, wow. But it was—I was just happy with it, part, partly because I, as chance, I chanced on getting this baritone singer, Mark Dewar, who does a song on that. That's just uh, uh, what well, was one one of my forays into writing English lyrics, and I was just very pleased with the way mm-hmm. that piece came out. Uh, what we will see.
3: The tools of the farmer are iron and skin. Earthquakes are weary of drinking them in. Whilst breaking and turning and probing with sticks, he consorts with the earthworms, barn flies, and ticks. The warm satisfaction comes not to
2: his mood. Mr. Kurt Hoffman, thank you so
0: much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, having me. It's been a
1: pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa, man. That was an amazing interview. I'm just I'm just I'm just sitting here just kind of in Can they say in, that? I'm in I'm in <laughs> I'm enraptured right now. I always love hearing someone's fly on the wall, you know, POV, not that he's a fly, he's a man, but uh <laughs> as far as we know. I'm sorry. Uh POV of the experience of touring with the Be Giants and recording with them. It's it's always so interesting. Uh, there's a clear, just like, there's a clear, like, love of doing music for music's sake. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Kurt is just like a pure musician who just wants to always be doing music yeah. and collaborating and, and doing all these different projects. If you enjoyed this episode, you should tell us at our Twitter at Don't Let's Pod, or you could tell us at our email. To our fucking faces. <laughs> at, yeah. Or you could come over. You want to, you want to go out, you wanna Say step outside? Say to my face. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, don't let start podcast at gmail.com. I've, I've always got Dave. I've always got a little tab open on my uh, right. browser. It's always there. So I'm ready. I'm ready for you. And you can go to anchor.fm slash don't let start. If you want to fucking, if you put, want to. put money where your mouth is, or what's the phrase, <laughs> put your mouth, re- what is that phrase, Dave? Just
2: put your money where your mouth is.
1: Yeah. I think in COVID times, it's probably not a, a not a good healthy idea. thing to do. This has been don't let's start a podcast about they might be giants. Yes. Accept no substitutes. A big thank you to Kurt Hoffman
2: for being so generous with his
1: time. He was generous with his time. He he emailed me so much stuff for this episode, the links and the music, and he he really he went like you know out of his way to like really help us like shape this episode to thank be as great so as much. it can be. Yes, thank you, Kurt, my favorite Kurt that I can think of at this moment. And we will be back. <laughs> Our next episode is a mystery episode. What will it be? Will oh. it even happen? Who knows? Probably. Goodbye.
3: <laughs> they should have watched out. They shouldn't have pouted. I'm telling you why. You're gonna get outed. What gifts shall reward humanity's crimes? Santa laughs out loud, and he drinks some milk, and he hurries to his sleigh. That's the year when Santa dragged the earth away To the asteroid belt where snowballs live Fifty thousand reindeer and a trailer hitch lead them to a frozen hell.